0: Hello and welcome to Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Kimarasami. sami We'll be bringing you the latest in just a moment from northern Syria, where Turkey has taken control of the once Kurdish-controlled city of Afrin. We'll also have a forensic look at the Second Amendment to the US Constitution on the right to bear arms. And as the war of words continues between Russia and the UK following the poisoning of a former Russian double agent... We'll hear from the Russian envoy to the European Union and from the British Foreign Secretary. All of that in about half an hour. First, though, a state's overwhelming military force brings a Syrian city under control. A resistance army is defeated and tens of thousands of civilians flee to neighbouring towns and villages. Well, the pattern may be familiar, but the state whose forces have entered what has been the Kurdish-controlled northwestern Syrian city of Afrin isn't Syria, but Turkey – After a two-month air and ground campaign, the incongruously named Operation Olive Branch, Turkish troops and their Syrian allies from the Free Syrian Army appear to have broken down the defences of the Kurdish YPG militia. Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan said the Kurdish militia have fled and their flags have been replaced by Turkish ones.
1: Most of the terrorists have already fled with tails between their legs. Our special forces and members of Free Syrian Army are clearing the remaining pockets of resistance and the booby traps left behind. In the centre of Afrin, symbols of trust and stability are waving, instead of the rags of
2: terrorists.
1: Well, the YPG and their political wing,
0: the PYD, were America's allies in the fight against Islamic State militants. But Turkey regards them, as we heard, as terrorists on a par with the banned Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK. Well, with the threat from IS diminishing, the Turkish authorities have been desperate to stop these Kurdish militias from gaining a foothold just across their southern border. We're going to hear from the Turkish government in just a moment. First, though, for the local Kurdish point of view, we got through to Ayesha Chem, who's a member of the Information Center of the Afrin resistance.
3: Yesterday night at two o'clock, we had to leave. And now we are one hour away from Afrin because uh, the, some of the members of the Turkish state and jihadists, they took over some uh, streets. So the situation was more dangerous, therefore we had to leave and we are now in Shehba, what is one hour away from Afrin city.
0: At this moment, you've got out of Afrin, but at this moment, what do you know of yeah. the the situation in the city? How bad is the fighting? What, what yeah, exactly got, is happening? Uh,
3: we got, yeah, for, for one hour we got um, information from there. Uh, some of them, uh, they are eyewitnesses and they said, when the people were uh, turning back to Jindras, to their own village, uh, that they were uh, attacked by Turkish warplanes. They attacked uh, the people and more than 100 people lost their life. At the same time, they placed mines in the city, in some special streets where the people are still living or where they were preparing themselves to get out. Also, they, the mines exploded where the people, where the civilians. And a uh, lot of civilians, uh, they lost their lives.
0: So would you say Turkish troops are now in complete control of the city?
3: We don't have concrete uh, informations because the people are very afraid and no one, uh, I mean, nobody, any kind of press is uh, there. So we only ha- have the pictures what the Turkish uh, state or Turkish media released where you can see the, some uh, special places and what they took.
0: There have been reports that YPG fighters have been stopping civilians from leaving Afrin.
3: No, that's not true because we self. I'm like uh, the group of the press members. We were like um, YPD uh, fighters. We couldn't see them uh, as we leave the city yesterday uh, midnight because they were um, fighting at, around the, of the city, not directly in the city, around in, in, on the main roads going from African city to other districts. There were uh, majority of them. They were uh, fighting there, and therefore. We could only see Assayish forces. Uh, these are like normal security forces of the people uh, what helped uh, and organised uh, the way for, for the people to don't have any kind of uh, panic situations and so on.
0: And that was uh, Isa Chem, who's a member of the uh, Information Centre for the uh, Resistance in Afrin. Well, uh, to get the... Turkish point of view, I've been speaking to Ahmet Barat-Chonka. He's an MP from the ruling AK party and he's head of the Turkish delegation to NATO.
2: In the 58th day of the operation, Turkish forces, with the support of three Syrian army troops, has controlled the Afrin city and now they are carrying out operations to clean up the city from the explosive and uh, different terrorist elements so that the people can come back to their neighborhoods and have a safe and secure environment in their city.
0: Because many people, perhaps tens of thousands, perhaps even more, have left Afrin with the fighting taking place, are you Mm -hmm. confident
2: that they will come back? Yes, we believe so. Uh, During the operation in the villages, there has been a lot of positive engagement with the locals because, uh, as you know, Turkish army is very considerate about the uh, civilians and their conditions.
0: Yet the UN Human Rights Office has said it's received deeply alarming reports from Afrin about civilian deaths and injuries due to airstrikes and ground-based strikes. How do you respond to that?
2: Turkish uh, forces has been very careful in hitting only the uh, military targets in this operation. And that was the reason that uh, this operation took a little longer than expected. If the Turkish army has made indiscriminate uh, kind of bombing, this operation could have been finished very, very early. If you look at the media reports, almost all of the news that was shared by PKK-YPG was basically discredited by our agencies because they did a lot of misinformation and false information about... Do you you
0: deny then that there have been civilian deaths as a result of the operation?
2: I mean, in every operation, there may be civilian deaths because of different reasons. But the main thing is that as a NATO member country, the Turkish army is very careful not to target civilians because these are our people as well that we are fighting for. So
0: you, you are saying that you are hoping that the civilians the people who have been living in Afrin until now will be happy to return do you I
2: believe that you, I you, believe, believe, you that. believe
0: that so you, do you think the makeup of Afrin after this operation will be similar will it be, remain a majority kurdish town
2: i mean we do not have any uh, problems with the demographic situation uh, you're, you're not trying to
0: change the demographic no, situation no. because there have been suggestions
2: no, that, no. That's the, what the Turkey wants that... to do.
0: One suggestion, and, th- and this comes from what President Erdogan has been saying about perhaps it's time for, for the millions of refugees who've come into Turkey, perhaps it's time for some of them to return back to Syria. One suggestion is that perhaps Turkey would like some of those refugees who've been living in Turkey to, to go to Afrin.
2: Definitely, definitely, because we have from the Kurdish populated areas about 350,000 refugees inside Turkey. And a lot of them are from the Afrin region as well. And not only Kurds, you know, Arabs and Turkmen are also living mixed with them. So we believe that with this stability, these people will be willing to go back. Just to
0: be absolutely clear, then you would want only to send back to Afrin people who are from there.
2: Of course, of course, because our expectation is to send people to their own homelands where they were living before the war started.
0: Are you confident that there won't be counterattacks? I mean, what is the plan now for the Turkish military now you've taken, Afrin? Will you be staying there for a while?
2: As long as it is necessary the Turkish army is, is going to provide this security service. And uh, hopefully, with the political solution achieved inside of Syria, Turkey is going to, of course, deliver these places to uh, the Syria.
0: The head of the Turkish delegation to NATO, Ahmed berat Chonka, there. So what does this mean and what might happen next? Joost Hilteman is the Brussels-based programme director for the Middle East and North Africa with the International Crisis Group, What does he think the significance is of Turkish forces taking control of Afrin?
4: First of all, of course, it's terrible for the for the Kurdish population uh, uh, and its leadership, to the extent that everyone agrees to that leadership. But uh, the the YPG slash PYD in northern Syria, um, because the population is now being displaced, the area has been quiet really for most of the Syrian war, and now suddenly it became a target, uh, and so uh, there's massive displacement, so there's suffering, and very uncertain future. For Turkey, this is a major victory because it gives Turkey the ability to disrupt any plans the YPG-PYD might have had to create a corridor along the Turkish border that is hostile to Turkey. And of course, it also gives it leverage in any future negotiations with the Syrian regime over the political future of Syria. So having taken it,
0: what will Turkey want to do With Afrin,
4: Well, I think what it will try to do, and it's hard to make predictions, but is to install a friendly leadership so that it can uh, have a place that that is uh, going to be free of control by its enemy, which is the YPG slash PYD, which are the Syrian affiliates of the PKK. It may try to uh, also do some demographic engineering. I don't want to predict that it's going to do that, but certainly the Kurds are fearful that this may happen. Um, and then it will use Afrin as a basis for further military advances uh, eastward towards the town of Manbij, and then the, and, and try to take control of the entire area west of the Euphrates River in the north of Syria.
5: You
0: use the phrase demographic engineering. I mean, that sounds suspiciously like what others might call in wartime ethnic cleansing. <laughs>
4: Yes. uh, I personally don't like the term ethnic cleansing because it's a euphemism. And I'm certainly not predicting that Turkey will do this, but it certainly gives them the opportunity to do so with the help maybe of the Syrian regime because of the massive displacement that is taking place now. If people are not allowed to return, that certainly offers opportunities to create... A situation on the border um, with a more mixed population. This has happened elsewhere along the border between Turkey and Syria in the past, not recently. And this is this is really an effort to keep the various Kurdish populations that do live there uh, non-contiguous, so that they cannot. Uh, because this is in in the end Turkey's biggest fear uh, that there will be a hostile entity on its border, stretching all the way from the Iraqi border to the Mediterranean.
0: And just to be clear, the Syrian government, how does it feel about all of this?
4: Well, the Syrian government is is not really in a position to do anything about it. It is uh, caught up in fighting elsewhere. At the moment, you see the tragedy Unfolding in eastern Ruta neighborhood of Damascus, it is using its forces there. It had no capability, given the depletion of its resources over the years of the civil war, to deploy also in Afrin. So it is begrudgingly uh, allowed, almost by default, Turkish forces to to enter and take Afrin.
0: That was Joost Hiltermann, who is the uh, Brussels-based Programme Director for the Middle East and North Africa with the International Crisis Group. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kimarasamy. Coming up in the programme...
6: A long, long time ago I can still remember That music used
0: to make me smile We'll smile and we'll cast our minds back a long, long time ago to get nostalgic with the veteran American singer-songwriter Don McLean. Reminder of our headlines at this hour, Turkish troops and their allies have seized control of the Syrian city of Afrin after a two-month battle with Kurdish militia. International chemical weapons experts will visit Britain on Monday to test a nerve agent used in an attack on a Russian spy. We'll have more on that later on in the programme. And helicopters have been used to rescue people from the roof of a burning tower block in the Philippines. As Wednesday's mass walkout by American students illustrated, the Parkland school shooting has given an unusual impetus to the campaign to tackle gun violence in that country. So far, though, the calls for expanded background checks at the time of gun sales, for a ban on assault weapons and for the raising of the minimum age for buyers haven't translated into concrete political measures. So what are the chances that they will? Well, as ever, the road to change runs into one immutable fact of American political life. If you run for office, you have to take a position on the US Constitution's Second Amendment, the clause that deals with gun ownership. Our Washington correspondent Gary O'Donoghue has been examining that much-cited passage in the US Bill of Rights. A
7: well-regulated militia
5: being necessary to the security of a free state,
7: the right of the people to keep and bear arms
2: shall not be infringed. infringed. So
5: there it is. One sentence, 27 words, three commas. The Second Amendment to the US Constitution ratified in 1791, ten years after the hated British Redcoats had been defeated. Sounds straightforward? Think again. Let's start with the idea of a militia.
8: At the time, Americans were very worried about the possibility of a standing army, of the kind that the Redcoats were during the Revolutionary War. And they believed that militias of citizen-soldiers were the answer to what they saw as potential tyranny.
5: Michael Waldman is the author of a book on the Second Amendment. Those militias he describes don't exist anymore. So surely that means the rest of the sentence is no longer relevant. Wrong, says Joyce Lee Malcolm, professor of constitutional law at George Mason University. She says the founders had the notion of an individual right straight from the English Bill of Rights.
4: It was very important that it was a pre-existing right. Think about what it says. It says the right of the people. It doesn't say there should be a right of the people. It just assumes that there's a right of the people to keep and bear arms.
5: That difference in interpretation didn't really get tested for 200 years. The Supreme Court didn't assert an individual right, but neither did it stand in the way of gun ownership.
9: Take the guns away from the American citizens. This country will go communist just like Russia or any of your others.
5: They call it the revolt at Cincinnati. The moment in 1977 when the National Rifle Association was transformed from a club for sportsmen and hunters into a hugely powerful political lobbying group, determined to prove that gun ownership was a constitutional right.
8: What the NRA did over three decades, like it or not, they won in the court of public opinion before going to the court of law, before going to the Supreme Court. So they had one of the most successful efforts unconstitutional change in American history.
5: Even after mass shootings, the NRA would stick to its absolutist view of the Second Amendment. Listen to the sheer defiance in the voice of the organization's president in 2000, Charlton Heston. He's brandishing a replica above his head as he says it.
9: I want to say those fighting words
5: from my cold, dead hands. (laughs) In 2008 everything changed. A security guard in his mid-60s named Dick Heller ended up here at the Supreme Court, arguing that the city of Washington had infringed his Second Amendment rights by banning him from keeping a handgun at home. The justices narrowly agreed with Mr Heller. They said every American had an individual right to keep a gun to protect hearth and home. Curiously, though, that victory hasn't led to the lower courts endorsing a free-for-all on gun ownership. Michael Waldman.
8: Dozens and dozens of courts all over the country have heard cases with people trying to strike down gun laws. Overwhelmingly, they've said, yes, it's an individual right, but society also has a right to protect itself.
5: One exception to this legal caution came in 2016. A Massachusetts woman wanted to carry a stun gun. The state disagreed and took it to the Supreme Court, saying her constitutional right didn't apply to weapons that weren't around in 1791. The justices overruled the state. The Second Amendment covered more than just muskets, they said. There are many more legal wrangles to come, but repealing the Second Amendment is a non-starter. Here's why.
4: Because it's very, very difficult to pass an amendment to the Constitution and eliminate the Second Amendment or truncate it in some way. You have to have two-thirds of both houses of Congress, three-quarters of the state legislatures. They are not going to be able to change the Constitution in that way.
0: Constitutional expert Joyce Lee Malcolm ending that report by Gary O'Donohue in Washington. A well-known Egyptian talk show presenter, Mona Iraqi, has gone on trial today for comments that she made on air in February when discussing rape. The presenter, who was previously embroiled in controversy when she cooperated with police who raided a bathhouse frequented by gay men, had pondered during a segment about a case of incest why men are always the culprits in rape cases, saying that they shown showed their affection in animalistic acts. Well, she later revealed that she herself had been raped when she was 10 years old. Hisham Kassem is a publisher and civil rights campaigner in Cairo. What does he make of the case?
9: Frankly, I was quite surprised to know that she's been charged. That's really one of the problems now in Egypt under Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Under Mubarak, there was due process observed. So sometimes you could make a statement or say something and they would not be happy, the authorities or the security services. But as long as you remained within the boundaries of law, you were safe. These days you could find yourself charged with contempt of family values or, or something similar. And I think that's more or less how Mona ended up in charge.
0: I mean, she made these comments about men and, and wondered on this programme why they're the ones who commit rapes and what their attitude is towards sex. Since she's made these comments, she has also revealed that she herself was raped when she was 10 years old. Is that likely to be uh, regarded by the the judges in this as as a mitigating
9: factor, do you think? That that would be a very difficult question to answer. Uh, And today we'll see because the case is anything from being dismissed you know, for no grounds, all the way to hearing that she's been sentenced today. What sort of sentence potentially could she face for this? Anything between three months to a year. The charge is not clear. And, you know, theft, for example, it's clear. You will get anything between this and that. But in her case, it's all up in the air. This is no longer a battle for freedom of speech. It's a battle for uh, the Republican system, due process. What can people like you do, though? What do you think you can achieve? Well, look, right now, the best I can do is to speak out. Uh, It worries my family, it worries my wife. I think the only thing we can do is to still make the case, to speak to local media or international media. Bear in mind that I, I used to, on average, comment twice to different TV stations every week. In the last three years, I've uh, done commentary in local TV about three times. I know that I'm blacklisted even in private stations and there is nothing they can do about it. But we still will continue to speak out. You, you say your family are worried about you doing this. My wife is quite concerned, yes. What, what do you say to her to explain why you're doing this? I have no intention to back off from my beliefs simply because somebody thinks he can violate the law in the way that's happening right now, whatever the consequences may be. Whatever the consequences for you? Whatever, whatever.
0: Now it's Hisham Qasem, publisher and civil rights campaigner in Cairo. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. Coming up next, we'll be hearing more about the case of the former Russian double agent who was poisoned in the English city of Salisbury as the British and Russian governments continue to argue over the agent that was used in the case, the nerve agent, that is. First, though, after nine days of sport, ranging from vision-impaired skiing to wheelchair curling, the Winter Paralympics are over and the closing ceremony has taken place in the South Korean city of Pyeongchang. Oh, I've been hearing about the games and the politics around them from JJ Chalmers. He's been covering the Paralympics for the BBC.
10: Well, it has been spectacular, as you would possibly imagine. Uh, I think it's been a beautiful blend of a lot of Korean tradition, as you could imagine, a lot of the classic drumming that we saw in the opening ceremony, but also a real wonder of technology, the fantastic light show. Okay. Uh, and, of course... The baton was handed over to Beijing because that's uh, where the games will be in four years' time, and the clock is reset. And now we're on a, on another countdown to the next Paralympic Winter Games.
0: What about these ones then? What What would you say the highlights?
10: Well, I mean, there are so many moments. It has been a fairly well a faultless games, I must say. I think that they've done a fantastic job of putting it on. There have been a couple of absolute sporting moments of history. Probably the thing I've felt the most whilst i've been here even more so than any of the the more recent games that we've had is that the world has perceived these games for what they truly are and that is elite sport it makes you re-realize what humanity is capable of because this is wonderful sporting endeavor
0: and how key to all of this has been the, the the south korean public and and the organizers
10: I'm going to hold my hand up and say, ultimately, it has been far more of a success, particularly in terms of the crowd numbers and the way that they've engaged with it in a way that I probably I didn't think would happen. I mean, in October, we were talking about them only selling around about 0.8% of the tickets. Uh, Now we've had the the most successful games in terms of ticket sales, 320,000 plus tickets sold. I'm looking at a closing ceremony stadium, which is two thirds full. In the build up to the the Winter
0: Olympics, there was so much talk about the political dimension uh, with the tensions between the North and the South. Of course, there've been huge developments over
10: the course of the last few weeks.
0: Has politics stayed out of the the winter paralympics or has it been there in the background
10: you know when you compare this to the olympics i suppose the biggest difference was during the opening ceremony Uh, ultimately the north and south korean teams did not parade as one nation uh, underneath the unified flag but at the same time this was North Korea's first games and they wanted the opportunity to come here and and historically parade into the stadium under their flag. There have been, as we've seen at some of the events, a big collection of, of, of the crowd who have been waving those flags uh, those sort of disputed flags in many ways of, of which, which shows the outline of a unified Korea uh, and so there has been politics bubbling away within it but actually in the day to day most of the individuals that you meet are purely just enjoying the spectacle that is the Paralympics
0: And that was uh, JJ Chalmers there who's been covering the Winter Paralympics for the BBC with his assessment of the sport and the politics around it the day after Russia announced a series of countermeasures following the UK's decision to expel 23 Russian diplomats from London. The verbal tit-for-tat over the nerve agent attack on a Russian double agent, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter, Yulia, has continued. Russia's ambassador to the European Union is Vladimir Chizhov. My colleague Andrew Marr asked him whether Russia was responsible for what had happened two weeks ago in the English city of Salisbury.
11: Well, this whole case is based on assumptions based on suspicions fueled by emotions. Actually, the Russian side, through the embassy in London, requested access to evidence, if any, if there is any, to the nerve agent from the very beginning, from the first day, but was flatly refused.
5: This is a very obscure nerve agent, not much understood around the world.
11: Um, Has Russia ever produced this agent, Novichok? No. Never? No. Actually... Uh, Russia has stopped uh, production of any chemical agents back in 1992. And according to the International uh, Convention on Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, last year, in 2017, Russia destroyed all its stockpiles. There is only one country today which hasn't done so, which is still retaining its chemical stockpiles, and that is the United States of America.
5: Can I be absolutely clear then, Russia has no stockpiles of any nerve agents whatever? Indeed, no stockpiles whatsoever. So then there is the question, how did this agent come to be used in Salisbury? It has been suggested, for instance, that during the dissolution of the Soviet Union, some of this agent may have been stolen or sold and ended up in the hands of either criminal gangs or other state parties. What's your view?
11: Well, uh, why don't you ask yourself the question, why, how come uh, the British authorities so quickly uh, managed to designate the nerve agent used as something called Novichok? When you have a nerve agent or whatever, uh, you check it against certain samples that you retain in your laboratories. And Porton Down, as we now all know, is the largest... Military facility in the United Kingdom that has been dealing with chemical weapons research, and it's actually only eight miles from from Salisbury.
0: Russia's EU ambassador Vladimir Chizhov speaking to Andrew Marr while reacting to those comments. The British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson insisted that the Russian state was to blame for the poisoning.
12: The trail of culpability leads inexorably to the Kremlin, and I think. Uh, listening to the Russian response, listening again to the, uh, the response of the uh, Russian ambassador to the EU with his satirical suggestion that this was done by uh, UK and agents uh, from Porton down. This is not the response of a country that really believes itself to be innocent. This is not the response of a country uh, that really wants to engage in getting to the bottom of the matter.
0: As far as getting to the bottom of the matter is concerned, Mr Johnson went on to say that specialists from the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons would arrive in Britain on
12: Monday. So what we are doing on the the Novichok and on the the nerve agent, what we will do is tomorrow, technical experts from uh, the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons uh, will come from The Hague to the UK. Uh, We will share the samples with them. They will then be tested by the most reputable possible international laboratories.
0: Well our home affairs correspondent Daniel Sanford is uh, monitoring all of this for us and he's here in the studio with me. Let's start with uh, that announcement Daniel. Uh, Do we know what these uh, experts will actually be doing when they come to Britain?
13: The idea is that they will then take control of both samples as it were from the crime scene but also some environmental samples which kind of will will show the kind of wider contamination that's happened in in other areas uh, the idea is that those will then go to uh, laboratories selected by the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons for testing that's going to take a minimum of 2 weeks we're told so it's not going to be a result in a in a in a couple of days obviously the british are hoping that that will support uh, what they're saying about uh, what this nerve agent was and also the, p- the potential origin of that nerve agent and while those experts uh, are reporting down tomorrow, uh, taking control of those samples, uh, Boris Johnson will be in Brussels where he's still trying to build a sort of coalition of support for the UK uh, meeting with EU foreign ministers. And will then go on and also meet with the NATO secretary general as um, he tries to share with kind of recent allies uh, their concerns about what happened and to give further information about what they believe did happen.
0: Interestingly, not just saying, uh, repeating the the British government's line that that they believe that the the Kremlin is responsible for this, but actually in that interview, he also suggested that Russia has continued to make uh, the Novichok agent within the last 10 years.
13: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most significant uh, insight we have into British intelligence on this matter, as opposed to sort of evidence. Uh, which was found in Salisbury, and assumptions that have been made based on that. As you say, pre- previously we've seen the British government saying, listen, this kind of nerve agent was a sort of Soviet Union speciality. Only they uh, and, the, and Russia have ever kind of made this nerve agent. Therefore, we have to assume that either the Russian government was responsible or somehow they'd lost control of their chemical we- weapon." stockpile. Now uh, we've got the British Foreign Secretary saying quite explicitly that they have, he said evidence, but I I would assume that's intelligence of some sort, uh, saying that not only have the Russians been trying to uh, work out ways of delivery of using these agents specifically for assassinations, uh, but also that they've got evidence that in the last 10 years that they have been making and stockpiling these specific Novichok nerve
0: agents. And in terms of how in this specific case, the agent was delivered. Uh, reports on ABC News from the United States uh, suggesting it could have been down to the the system, the ventilation system, I believe, in the, in the car that they were using.
13: Yes, and th- those um, our reports are completely unconfirmed from UK uh, sources at the moment. I think what we can say with some certainty is that when the Skripals left their car in the uh, supermarket car park, on that Sunday to go to uh, a, first a pub and then a restaurant, they were already contaminated. Uh, it, 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 it's clear from the way the investigation's been conducted there's been an enormous amount of focus on the car. Uh, the place the car was actually uh, overstayed its parking while the piles were in hospital, so it was towed away um, by a, a recovery company. And the place where that car was towed away to has been a massive amount of focus. The car has been a massive amount of focus. It seems like the car is likely to be the source of
0: contamination. Daniel Sanford, thanks very much. So, with the politics of this case still playing out, what do Russian exiles in London make of it all? Well, my colleague Michael Innes has been to meet one rather prominent one.
14: Morning, This is Mayfair in central London. Boutique clothes shops, big black cars and overpriced restaurants. It's a magnet for Russian money. In this wine shop, it is possible to buy a bottle for under $30, but if instead you choose one of the 27-litre bottles of Rioja and a 19th-century Chateau de Kem to go with your dessert, you won't have much change from $30,000. A
7: few days ago, we have a tasting with uh, Charles Heysik about some history and about some secrets of how that amazing champagne...
14: Yevgeny Varkin is the owner of Hedonism Wines. Bearded, with a twirled moustache, he wears mustard leather shoes, a coat that sweeps the floor and in his left ear, a silver teddy bear earring attached by a large safety pin. He made hundreds of millions of dollars selling mobile phones in Russia, but fled in 2009 facing charges that were later dropped of kidnapping and blackmail. Since then, he's been vocal in protests against the Kremlin. But when I meet him in his shop, his mind is on another matter, a children's trampoline.
7: Life here is quite comfortable, to be honest to live without bodyguards and with very good, fresh air and good weather. Yeah, of course, it's a very comfortable life. From another point of view, uh, it's happened, for example, today, our neighbours disagreed to sign the petition for the council to install little trampoline for little kids in a communal garden for everybody that I wanted to do for my own money because I'm a kidnapper and it's, from the situation with the Skripal, it's so dangerous for our neighbours to sign that petition. And is that typical? I mean, are people afraid it's to a, associate with you because of your... It's a typical discrimination.
14: On Thursday, the United States announced new sanctions against a number of individuals, including Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is believed to be behind a troll farm called the Internet Research Agency. Evgeny Chichvarkin says that when he arrived in Britain, he became a target
7: of its threats. Trolls' factory tried to scare me every day for many years. we we'll cut you in pieces, we'll bring you to Russia. Tomorrow you will be poisoned by polonium and blah, 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 blah. And these blah. were put hundreds online or hundreds. were they sent to you? It's open. If you have Russian translator, it's open. It's in comments. Every day, what I have. In, and naming for you personally? Few, yeah, yeah, for a few years. It, it, in my social media, in my Instagram, in my Twitter and my Facebook. And how did that affect you and your family? I ignored it. And your family, did they react? Everybody ignored it. But, but that's for probably a normal Londoner, it was reason to sign the police report, but... If I will send for every common police report, it will be, it will be very unsafe for the trees. <laughs> so, given what's
14: happened in Salisbury a couple of weeks ago, has that made you rethink um, your life in
7: Britain? I hundred percent understand that it's a KGB, death penalty, uh, torture show for everybody who work for KGB first and. For us who criticize Putin too much, I will continue to fight with the consul about trampling, and I will support freedom in Russia and freedom of speech in Russia as much as I can. Doesn't that make you a target? Uh, I don't know what is the probability. There is no zero percent of probability or hundred percent of probabilities. There's something in between. and You never know where it's in between. I feel more safe than in Russia, That' what I can say. Do you think you still have
14: enemies in Russia?
7: I think the, at least half of the
14: Russian government. There's been a lot of talk about sanctions on Russian businesses, Russians living in Britain, those with connections to the Kremlin. Do you want to see the British government being tougher on those sort of people or do you think that would just cause more trouble?
7: To do sanctions against Russian businesses in the United Kingdom is like a shooting in your own uh, foot. Freedom of investment, that's what the United Kingdom economy is strong for. But the personal sanctions against Putin and his friends that's probably the reaction have to be. Because sanctions against country, the reaction will be just people will support Putin more. The the sanctions have to be personal against people who create that situation. And it's not a big group of people.
0: A reminder of our top story this hour. Turkish troops and their Syrian allies have seized control of the Syrian city of Afrin after a two-month battle with Kurdish militias. More than 150,000 people are said to have fled the fighting in recent days. The head of the Turkish delegation to NATO, Ahmed Berat Chonka, said he was confident that they would return after the Turkish forces complete mop-up operations in the city.
2: Now they are carrying out operations to clean up the city from the explosive and uh, different terrorist elements so that the people can come back to their neighborhoods and have a safe and secure environment in their city.
0: A couple of other headlines. International chemical weapons experts will visit Britain on Monday to test a nerve agent used in an attack on a former Russian spy. And helicopters have been used to rescue people from the roof of a burning tower block in the Philippines. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamara-Sami. The American singer-songwriter Don McLean is about to release his 19th album, nearly 50 years after he made his recording debut. Well, he came into our studio earlier this week, sounding slightly gruffer and looking slightly rounder than the man who gave us that Stars and Stripes thumbs up on the cover of his most famous recording, American Pie. And he began by telling my colleague Paul Henley about his new record, Botanical
15: Gardens I just wrote the the song really about some fellow just sort of ambling through these gardens and thinking about his youth and romance and and, uh, there's something throughout this record of just how fast life goes There lies a world that's transformed before me When I arrive Will I ever go back In the last song, there's a song called Last Night When We Were Young. And last night you were young, you know. The next day you're not.
6: A long, long time ago I can still remember How that music used to make me smile
1: and I think you said when you were auctioning off the manuscript for American Pie, that you didn't have much of an attachment to things. Only people, and and strictly speaking, to your wife and children and your guitar.
15: Yeah, that's true. Well, my wife and I are divorced now, so I'm not so attached to her anymore. But I am attached to my guitar and my kids, that's for sure.
1: And you say they don't have a mercantile instinct. Uh,
15: Maybe you're proud of that, are you?
1: Is that along your lines or what?
15: I have a mercantile instinct uh, for some reason I everything I do is valuable I don't know how that happened because I never thought about doing that but I have good timing and I have good instincts I'm amazed myself that I that I've gotten where I've gotten I look back over my life and I never really had a plan I just had ideas I had notions philosophical ideas that I wanted to get into songs. So
6: bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And them good old boys Were drinking whiskey and rye Singing, this'll be the day that I die This'll be the day that I
1: die In American Pie, you write about a country going in the wrong direction... And that was, what, 1970? Has it been going in the wrong direction ever since?
15: Well, I think since Kennedy was assassinated that it's been going in the wrong direction. Uh, I think in some ways the 60s were the wrong direction. Uh, Because people have to believe in something in order to win battles and in order to sustain, you know, a culture And when you're only in love with winning and you're only in love with money, which is what we are now pretty much in love with in America, that's not good enough. Uh, You have to be willing to die for something. And, uh, you know, I think that's sort of ebbed away throughout the years. And I think we've become aware of the fact that You know, we can't trust governments and we really can't – we don't hear the truth and so many things. And I don't think that was the way it was before. People would say, well, you know, you were living in a fool's paradise. You know, you believed the government. This is possibly true. But, I mean, we did um, win wars and we were – we had great business – things happening. And we also had excellent universities. We've gone down and down and down and all this. Not just nostalgia? Is it not just part
1: of age? I think you said 1957 was your favorite year and and everyone has their their youthful perfection in a way and then see it's going downhill.
15: Oh, we're dead last in math. (laughs) That's not nostalgic. (laughs) Are you You political now? I'm not political anymore because... There's no such thing as being political. I mean, look at the environment uh, in the United States. It's sort of a ragged game show of some kind.
6: Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and grey Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul
1: Can we talk for a moment about Starry, Starry Night, which... I think is one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. So just indulge me a bit about when you wrote that. And I I think you connected it in in one interview to your father's death. I know it's literally about Van Gogh, but there were other things going on for you at the time,
15: weren't there? My father's death um, basically unhinged me in some strange way that I don't even understand. Not a day goes by I don't think about him, at least for a minute. And how I old were you? Fifteen. What it do- does is I think it, it, at a very young age, just reminded me about how everything can go in a second. Uh, so I relate, I think, to stories and ideas that are uh, poetic and beautiful. And that's and, what I wanted to devote my life to is to just hold on to something beautiful and – put something out in the world that was beautiful and not ugly they would not listen they did not know how perhaps
6: they'll listen now
1: starry starry night
15: why why is sadness so integral do you think um well i guess that Sometimes I see, you know, I'm, I'm a manic-depressive, I would say. You know, I get very manic and very happy. And also I get down, uh, like everybody. But we're all philosophers, you know. We're all wondering what this experience is. We're all really on our own. we got to cross that lonesome valley by ourselves. And we all, even though we have families and friends and all this stuff, you know, we're on our own, and we've got to figure things out. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? What's the point of all this? Am I doing the right thing with my life? You know? They
6: would not listen. They're not listening still. Perhaps they never
0: reflections there by the american singer songwriter don McLean. he was speaking to my colleague uh, paul henley about uh, his new record botanical gardens but also about some of his greatest hits from the past Uh, that brings us to an end of this edition of news hour from me james kamara sami and the rest of the team here in london thanks very much for listening goodbye NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.